Hi, this is Joe Rubenstein, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Okay, and we are joined by our special guest, Joe Rubenstein. Joe is a prolific artist, mostly known for his inking in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And according to what I have read, he's worked on over 13,000 different pages, which ranks him at number 13 in all time. Comic. I was robbed. Okay. <laughs> but he, he's truly among the legends in comics. So, so, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks. I don't know what, I mean, somebody wrote that I had done 2,500 individual comic books. But I guess with all the different jobs that I helped people out on, I've done more. And, and somebody ranked me as eighth. And the thing is, I've gotten shockingly little work over the last 21 years. And if I had, I bet you I'd be number one. But I'd also be much like shorter and more tired. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. th this business will wear you down like the back of a pencil eraser, ironically enough. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice uh, pun there. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've struggled with how to properly pronounce your last name, but it's, it's Rubenstein. And of course I go back to the, the Mel Brooks movie, Young Frankenstein. It's Frank Gunstein. Is, uh, I'm sure you've, you've had to correct some people over the years. Have you just insulted my looks? Is that what just <laughs> um, actually, I turned to my father once. And said, so what is it, Frank Rubenstein or Rubenstein? And he said, it's Rubenstein. I went, well, that helps a lot, thanks. <laughs> um, but I think Rubenstein is the way I go. So Excellent. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, and I know that you also, people call you Joe, but uh, you have, um, throughout your career, also been known as Joseph, uh, as, as your, I guess, uh, early career name. Um, so I'm sure you, you get people calling you both. I think um, my name is unique because you can misspell both of them. It's, it's like my, my spelling is European, J-O-S-E-F. So they always get that with a B-H. And then Rubenstein is R-U-B-I-N, but they spell it E-N. This must be exceptionally boring for your readers. So you probably <laughs> want to get to another subject. <laughs> All right. Why we will certainly, we'll, we'll cover your work on Captain America because yeah, that's the focus of this show, right? Um, I do want to acknowledge just a taste uh, of some of your amazing work over the decades. So you, you have worked with uh, Frank Miller on the classic 1982 Wolverine miniseries. Um, and on that miniseries theme, we'll, we'll stick with Mark Sylvester in the 1987 X-Men versus Avengers and George Perez and Ron Lim in the 1991 Infinity Gauntlet. Um, so uh, not to mention a ton of regular series, right? Um, classic runs with uh, John Byrne on his X-Men, uh, the hysterical Justice League International. I mean, I, I could go on and on. Um, however, maybe your work on the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, that, that may be the most impressive. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that and, and how you got that gig. Well, let, let me just first by starting with um, Mark Silvestri, is six foot six, so don't get his name wrong, because he'll, <laughs> he'll find you. Um, secondly, so what's the deal with you and Captain America of all the characters in the world? How come you guys have decided to focus on him? Oh, well, we could, Bob and I could 
we could go on and on ourselves. In fact, I have time. Oh, well, uh, going back to uh, episode podcast series, which only started just a few weeks ago, um, we we actually got into our love of Cap. It's really just mostly about the character. It's about what he stands for, um, what he uh, embodies. Uh, it's it's not the the uniform or the the shiny shield, uh, which is cool. Don't get me wrong, but it's the man behind the mask. And um, you know, it just it it hit us early on uh, in in when we were young and impressionable. And um, you know, it just one of those characters that, quite frankly. Um, has stayed with us over the years. And, and uh, you know, Steve Rogers is my all-time favorite fictional character. Do you think his morality derived from the 1930s and 40s is unique of its time, that it hasn't carried across? Or maybe he was unique of his time and most people weren't. Because, you know, he's characterized as this Boy Scout. Right. Uh, so do you find that... that He's too simplistic in the way he views the world, or he's got a moral code that is probably pretty hard to follow these days. I think he, I think he was. I mean, in the 30s and the 40s, certainly he was, uh, and in the 50s, and even in the 60s, I think a very simplistic character with a very simplistic sort of simplistic, you know, black and white moral code. Um, but I think, you know, the thing that attracts me and always has is I, I got into Cap when I was a kid long before I, I went off to military school and embarked on a career in the Marines for, for many, 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 many years. And the thing that, uh, that appeals to me about him is how the moral code has struggled to sort of find a place in contemporary culture, contemporary politics, and how politics and culture has evolved and, and changed, and, and how the character through different writing and creative teams has struggled to find a way for, for Cap to exist in changing culture while remaining true to what the original character was supposed to represent. Because I found that, you know, my beliefs and my ideologies have, have evolved and changed over the years through experience in education and education and whatever. And yet Cap still speaks to me in that way. So um, I think that's what I find most interesting. Do you, do you think that since you were in the Marines, both you and Cap could kill with a paperclip? Um, it would have to be a super large paperclip paper for clip. me. Yeah, it would have Cap, to be really, really big. Does Cap kill? No. Well, uh, yeah, he's not supposed to, right? Or two, um, because, you know, he was the super soldier at that time. But uh, over the, since he's been revived in, in modern time, he he has a, a moral code to, to not kill. It's not to say it hasn't happened, but, but by all means. Um, so, you know, a question for you, because, you know, you're, you had mentioned, I mean, I've, I've seen that your some of your early influences were Jack Kirby and, and Jim Starenko. So certainly those were fan favorites among early Cap fans. Can we assume uh, being Kirby and Starenko uh, that, that maybe you were a Cap fan back in the day as well? Do you think I could get away with not answering a second question in a row? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, you know, as, as a little kid, but by the way, as an aside, when I was on the Avengers and I suggested they give them something to do all day other than sit there waiting for the world to be invaded so they had something on their, on their agenda, I suggested that Captain America not like video games because at the end of it, what have you accomplished? And 
you probably won't win anyway, you know? So I, I like the idea that Kat had something that had a determined goal and got there and, and you know, you might've improved yourself. And I realize there's downtime. So you can't always just be learning things. Um, as a kid, I, I was blown away when Kirby started to do all the DC work. I was very excited when the new gods and the forever people and all that happened. And Steranko was mind blowing. Um, interestingly enough, artistically, neither one of them um, influenced me, though you can't avoid Jack Kirby influencing everybody. Because even if your work doesn't superficially resemble his, the way he did comic books and the dynamic layouts and, and even the proportion of the figures, I think has influenced everybody ever since. Um, and the thing is, if you get down to it, all comic book artists are influenced by the Holy Trinity of uh, Alex Raymond, Hal Foster, and Milton Knipp. And when you look at Jack Kirby, you go, well, his work doesn't resemble any of this at all. But you look at the early stuff, and he had long, lanky figures with long rendering lines on them. So he was influenced by Alex Raymond, Flash Gordon. And then, of course, you know, being the genius that he was, he just took off on his own. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Jim Shooter tells me the story that he would use this Captain America job to teach all of the pencilers who worked for Marvel how to uh, story tell better. And he'd say, see in this panel how Jack had him go from this panel to this position to this, that, and the other thing. And then he went to Jack and said, hey, Jack, I used this story that you drew. Is this how you do it? And he went, I don't know. <laughs> I just do it. You know, so so he did not intellectualize it at all. He just sort of, you know, like like uh, a great composer of music. I think he opened up the faucet and God came through. So, yeah. um, you know, as far as far as Captain America goes, he is kind of a Boy Scout, but so what? So you know, so he's the guy. As long as he's not obnoxious about it, you know. Um, he just wanted the world to be a better place. And um, I mean, look, in, in the midst of today's politics or certainly Watergate or other times like that, it's nice to have black and white. It's nice to have, that's the good guy, that's the bad guy. Because sometimes recently I've noticed the bad guys became the good guys and then back to the bad guys. You know, it's sort of like um, situational, but, um, you always knew what Cap was doing. So question uh, regarding your, I mean, we talked a little bit about your early uh, loves and, and influences. Now you started off as, as a young teenager being the assistant to Neil Adams and, and Dick Giordano, both comic book legends. How did that come about? Well, all right, we have to go back a few years before that. Um, my family immigrated to Israel, uh, from Israel when I was five years old. <clears throat> and since I didn't speak or read the language, my older cousin had a stack of Superman family comic books. So I guess I was enthralled by them, the color and the fact that I, I could understand what I was looking at. Um, and like most little kids, I think, I picked up crayons and lined notepaper and I started to draw my own comic books. And then I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to enter that world. And, and I, I'll bring up another character. I think Spider-Man is the greatest comic book character ever 
because he's this sensitive kid with glasses who just wishes he were stronger and more popular. And if he only had superpowers and big muscles, all the girls would like him and all the boys would want to be his friends. And he got all that stuff and nothing happened. It didn't work out well for him at all. So when you're a little kid, you want to be popular. And, and you know, the only superpower I might achieve was learn to draw better. So um, I went to the Art Students League of New York where I lived when I was 11 years old. And then when I was 13, <clears throat> I went to my first comic book convention, which luckily for me, my father brought me to at my begging. Uh, and I wanted to really draw what's exactly in front of me. That seemed like the goal in life, to draw exactly your reality. And the guy, as much as, as Steranko was, was mind-blowing, the guy who looked like he was doing that to me was Neil Adams. Now, since then, I've realized that Neil is as stylized as anybody else, but it did seem the goal. So at my very first comic book convention, who's there but Neil Adams, along with an artist named Alan Weiss, who, by the way, did a, a Captain America story with werewolves, I seem to remember. Um, who I'm inking a job of his right now, whatever it is, 48 years later. Um, and Neil and Dick had just started a studio together, which consisted of three rooms they were renting from a, on a, on a floor of a commercial studio. And I asked if they needed any help running errands or making coffee or whatever. And they said, yes, miraculously enough. And that's what I did. I, ran errands and made coffee and got yelled at by Neil a lot. Um, and then by the time I was 15, I, this was during the summer and then I got to work after school. And then by the time I was 15, I was uh, Dick's assistant doing filling in blacks and eventually backgrounds and secondary figures. And then by the time I was 17, I got my first freelance job and that's all I've ever done my whole life. I've never had wow. a real job. Wow, that's great. I mean, and we're talking at this point, it's the mid 70s. And uh, you're, as you mentioned, uh, you know, a young teenager uh, in, in doing your work. And it just really has blown up since then, right? I mean, you, you've, you've done so much. And, and talking, kind of getting back to Captain America. Um, so the first issue I noticed you were credited was back in 1979. I think it was issue 235, where you inked Ed Hannigan's cover. It's that classic cover of Daredevil and Captain America on a biplane flying over Manhattan. And um, the next issue I noticed your work was on was Cap 245, where uh, Carmine Infantino did the, the breakdowns, and you were credited mm -hmm. with the finished art as well as the inks. Tell the listeners, what's the difference between inking and finishing a penciler's, penciler's layouts? Well, first, they probably should know what inking even is, because I, I recently said to somebody, I'm a comic book inker, and of course, everybody seems to think that means the colors. So um, somebody takes a blank sheet of paper, and with a graphite pencil, they draw the pictures in. That's the penciler. And then the inker comes around with black ink and brush and pen and fingers and anything that makes a mark and goes over that stuff and uh, hopefully helps the artwork. And then the uh, colorist adds it. But just, just to make it uh, a little bit more understandable, what, 
when a composer of music has a blank sheet in front of them and they it create, they've invented something that didn't exist. That's great. Now they hand it to a musician and say, please don't hurt my baby. Here's my intentions for what I want done with this artwork, uh, with this music. So I, in that metaphor, I have to decide, am I going to use a piano or a tuba or a guitar? Obviously, each one of those will change the intention of the work considerably, or at least the presentation. So let's say I decide to use a, a guitar. Okay, great. Now is it flamenco, classical, jazz, rock? So obviously within all of that, there's still a lot more of me coming through, even though I'm still playing the same sequence of notes that the composer came up with. So my job is to take what the penciler did, or the composer, and follow the lead and amplify that. So when a penciler does layouts, or shakedowns or breakdowns, they're much sketchier. There's a lot more ambiguity to what's going on so that I have to interpret and invest more of my knowledge and viewpoint into the artwork. Um, though, again, I, I think my goal is not to, like a relay race where I'm handed off the baton. I don't go, I don't care what you guys want. I'm gonna run over there up into the stands. It's like, I believe that I've been, assign the responsibility to carry through with the concept and want to do that instead of the vast majority of anchors who just decide, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what you want. Mm -hmm. So um, Carmine, it, it, he was by that point a very sketchy penciler. And Carmine wasn't so interested in being a good draftsman and drawing a, a terrific figure, like let's say a Kurt Swanwood or even Jack Kirby. He was more of a designer. So within the design and the shapes and the graphics, I had to add the, more of the three-dimensionality and the black placement to his work. Yeah, because I, and I, I think you've mostly done inking, but you've had opportunity many, many, many times to, to do finishing. Do, do you prefer one over the other? Um, well, I look back at my old work and the worst thing I did was spot blacks and so that's when I was a finisher. So I guess I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, now, now layouts don't exist. Uh, breakdowns don't exist. Every editor wants the penciler to make super, super tight pencils so that when it's inked by whoever, it, they, they know what they're getting back. Um, I, I don't especially like inking somebody like Arthur Adams, who I, I uh, got his first job, as a matter of fact because there's very, very little room to do much in. But I'm inking a whole series of Garcia Lopez covers at this moment, and he's such an excellent draftsman that I don't have to worry about any corrections. And there's just enough sketch to it where there's a little bit of room for me to add. So that's, that's the perfect thing. But like in the case of Burns, Captain Marker, which I know you were getting to, um, John's pencils were absolutely on the money and there was nothing ambiguous about what John wanted done. I just felt that I needed to push it a little further in a direction. So that's why I liked working on John's stuff. I, I like working on it till this day. So, yeah, and speaking of, of, of the Byrne run, right, this was uh, the classic Roger Stern, John Byrne, Joe Rubenstein uh, that ran from 247 to 255, which is 
way too short in many people's minds. Mm-hmm. And you were working both the interiors and the covers with John. Um, and you mentioned this was certainly one of the highlights from your career. And, and yes. Okay. I mean, obviously working with John Byrne is a highlight to anyone's career. I just, I didn't know if there Oh, were... I, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, John, John can be a difficult person. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I have no memory of how I got the thing, but I'm sure Jim Salakrup was the editor who I happened to have gone to high school with. Um, said, hey, you want to do Captain Barco of John Byrne? I think probably what it was is, I know I was inking, uh, I was reading the X-Men that John and uh, Claremont were doing. And of course it was really good and really popular. And um, then I saw John's pencils before Terry inked them. And I thought, oh wait, there's an awful lot of potential here that I don't think is happening in the X-Men stuff. And you know, it's it's back to the um, music example. Terry had his own concept of where he wanted to push the work. And I looked at it and went, oh, I think I, there's a whole other place to go with this stuff. Mm-hmm. On top of that, um, John had uh, said in an interview that for the first 10 years of his life, he had tried to draw like Neil Adams or of his career. He tried to draw like Neil Adams. So for the next 10, he tried not to draw like Neil Adams. Well, I come from the Neil Adams school, rightfully so. Um, so my idea was this stuff can go a little further towards the Neil Adams work. And um, I, I very much enjoy the artists that Neil was influenced by. Stan Drake and Wally Wood and Joe Kuber, illustrated him, Austin Briggs, other people. So I'm more inclined to go towards the more organic look. So when every now and again people ask the, the survey question, who's John Byrne's best inker? It's usually I'm number one and Terry's number two or Terry's number one and I'm number two. And they always cite that, well, Joe's work is more organic than Terry's, which it is. Um, so it depends what you're looking for. Um, and then when we started to do, I, I don't know if I'd ever inked John before then. It might've been the very first time. Um, and then when the covers started happening, I resolved that I would make them as special as I could within whatever limitations John presented me with. So for instance, there's a cover where Captain America, it's the, the Baron Blood issue. Uh, so it's meant to have a Gothic mm-hmm. horror feeling to it. So John just drew a cover and it was going to be inked. Well, what I did was I went over the whole cover with watered down indie ink so you get grays. And then I inked the whole cover with gray. And of course, I got all this okay before I did it because it was going to cost Marvel a little bit more money. And then what happens is it's, I don't know how this technically works. It's shot through a filter so that it gets this sort of scratchy, crosshatchy feeling to it. And then it was colored and not exceptionally well. But my idea was just to give it a different look than a straight old comic book cover. And then the next cover with Baron Blood where Cap is fighting him, there's a series of tall windows behind him, which I think were sort of trying to be symbolic of a church, maybe. Um, and instead of just sticking a black line around them, I made it so that the windows were just color outlines so that they sat back. It's not a, a tremendous innovative accomplishment, but it was just another layer that I wanted since I was on this series to make it as special as I could. And of course, Roger was writing beautiful stuff. John was, I think, 
at the height of his penciling skills. They were collaborating. John's an idea guy. Roger certainly is too, and, and they put it together. And I wanted it to be a special series for everybody involved. And, and by the way, comic books, several years later, wound up paying royalties to the creators. And some people were making tremendous amounts of money, like uh, Jim Lee on the X-Men and whatever. But when we were doing Captain America, there was no royalties. The, the reason to do your best work is to do your best work, because if you're gonna spend the vast majority of your life sitting around, alone in a room, which God knows I do, I'd like to have something to point to at the end of the day that I'm not ashamed of, and hopefully they'll think good enough to give me the next job. I mean, you've got a huge body of work. Is there anything that kind of stands out as maybe the most challenging assignment that you've ever taken on? Well, it might have been the Wolverine series with Miller because um, those were layouts, come to think of it. And there was a lot of ambiguity in what Frank was putting down. And I have to keep asking, what did you want here and what did you want there? And if you look at Daredevil done at the exact same time as the Wolverine miniseries, they look considerably different, even though both Klaus Janssen and I were trained by Dick. Klaus was given full pencils by Frank Miller and I was given layouts. So I did a lot more of me in it. Though, while I think the Wolverine stuff in retrospect looks fine, Klaus over Daredevil with Frank is perfect. So... I was I was disappointed in myself because I didn't think Wolverine looked as much as as good as Daredevil did, but 25 years later, forgetting what I wanted to happen, I looked at what did happen. I thought it was pretty good. Um, yeah. So, so the other thing that uh, just getting back to that issue 245 we mentioned before that you did with uh, Carmine, you actually had done uh, uh, the cover as well with Frank Miller. Uh, right. It was the Night of the Nazi Hunter, which is this classic cover of Cap uh, busting in on an elderly woman who's about to shoot a tied-up man, presumably a Nazi. And you also did the cover with Frank Miller to Cap 255, which was mm -hmm. the anniversary issue in 1981. Did, did this work with Frank lead uh, to you being asked to join him on Wolverine? Like, how did that come about? Uh, I, I don't think so. But I mean, I, I suppose if Frank didn't like what I did on his work, what happened was um, Frank and I are only, I think, like six months or a year apart in age. And he was this skinny, starving kid living in Manhattan who had relocated from Vermont. And I was living with my parents. So since I wasn't paying rent, I had money. I mean, you know, relatively speaking. And so when Frank would show up, I, occasionally I would buy him lunch because he was starving. And um I know anatomy or studying anatomy and Frank would show me his pages and I would correct his anatomy for him on some of his figures. And I just want to make it really clear. I didn't draw any figures. I take no credit for Frank Miller's career. He would just have me like fixed arms or something. Um, so I guess when Frank got Daredevil, he trusted me enough based on our friendship and the other covers possibly that Captain America, where he allowed me to do his first cover um, and then when I did my first issue of Daredevil, Klaus inked my first issue, so we kind of flipped it around. Um, but the way I got Wolverine was, in those days, everybody had to live in the New York City tri-state area because there was no FedEx and there was no internet. Um, so you'd, hand, you, you'd deliver your pages by hand. 
And then you'd meet each other, hang around the offices or go to the Christmas party or whatever. And so I don't know why I was hanging around the offices that day, but Frank walked up to me and said, Hey, you want it? We're doing this mini series on Wolverine. You want ink? And I went, yeah, okay. Eh. Who knew? Eh. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a job. You do it. It's a job. You know, you, you, you turn to the people who did gone with the wind or the Godfather and say, what was it like? It's just, a job we did it they asked us to do it they paid us we did it we went home you know and and as i uh, mentioned earlier you do it because you want to have some pride in your work and you do it because you want to get employed again but i had no idea that it was going to get legs and that i was going to be associated with him which i'm grateful for the rest of my life uh same thing with uh starlin on the avengers annual and thanos and all that he was a character. We did the comic book. It was over. And says, you know, maybe they'll make a movie out of this 40 years from now. We'll make $2 billion. We can only hope, you know. <laughs> right. So. All right. I have to go back to the John Byrne because um, you mentioned something in passing. Uh, you said, oh, you know, he's, uh, he's very difficult. And I know I've heard you say in, the, in other interviews that um, you wouldn't mind working with him again, but not necessarily speak with him. Mm-hmm. To elaborate? Uh, John can, can be um, unpleasant and sarcastic and uh, insulting and many other things and uh, not necessarily justified either. And um, after a certain point, I just went, well, you know, I don't see a good reason to, to talk to this guy again, but um, I'll gladly ink his work, you know, and there, there are people who are very, very good artists, really great artists like Gil Kane, who uh, we hated each other and I'm fine with hating him. <laughs> and, and then there were people like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who's the artist's artist, who's like universally loved and should be. And John Buscema, who was a big, you know, bear of a man and gruff, but really he was a very nice, sweet guy. You know, and Gene Colan, who's a great comic book artist who is understated and, and remarkably humble. Um, and I imagine if you ask John uh, and, and probably a dozen other people about me, they tell you how difficult I was, but um, I probably lead a happier life just being alone in my studio, inking John Burns work than actually having to have a conversation. With him. So, Well, you know, it's funny. We, we interviewed Bob Sharon uh, recently and um, uh, it came up, talking about the two, two of the three things that you need to have to be successful in, in this career. And this was an interview I had with Bob, uh, Mark Bagley maybe 15, 20 years ago. And it's essentially you need to uh, have talent, need to make your deadlines, and you need to get along with your editor. And you don't need to have all three, but you need to have two of those three. So you could be as you mentioned, uh, a super talented guy who makes his deadlines, but maybe not the nice guy, nicest guy in the world. So, uh, but you're still going to get work. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, I, I, and I think that's uh, any industry you're in. Well, you know, it, it got to the point where I don't think anybody wanted to work with John. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I know editors will say, yeah, that referring generically, that guy is a better artist than this one but I'm going to be much happier working with that one, you know, and, and there's a lot of work to do and, and you don't need hassles. You don't. And, and, and another thing I suppose that fits in with what um, Bob Sharon said, but 
you need professionalism, which means you need communication and you need honesty. You can't tell the editor the, the job showing up on Monday and then nothing shows up by Thursday. You can call him up on Monday and go, I'm in trouble. You won't get it till Thursday. So yeah, you, 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 and, and, and I know of another guy I used to do Peter Parker with and a really good comic book artist. And he was just an outlaw liar. And, and, and people just got fed up with him and says, I'm never working with that guy again. And the thing is, sure, there are people like Gil Kane and Gene Colan and John Buscema and Jack Kirby that you always want to work with. But if it gets to the point, and I'm not, uh, you know, referring necessarily to those guys who the work never shows up, they're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, they're liars, they're gamblerholics. You know, it's like, I'm, gl I'm glad you're the greatest comic artist ever, but the work has never shown up, you know. So, uh, and there's plenty of people online waiting to get into comic books. There's plenty of, I mean, you, you, you never hear anybody put out an ad going, please, we need more actors and artists and musicians in the world. It's like, they're always lining up waiting to get jobs. And um, in the case of, of Dick Giordano's assistants, the, the Austin's, Wyacek, the Carlo, me, Arnie Starr, um, we searched Dick out to learn our profession. And then because of our association with Dick, who was a great, great, great guy, um, we were given our chance to prove ourselves. But once you're given the chance, it's like Joe Kubert once said, he said, your first job's not your hardest job to get, it's your second job. We'll be right back after this pause. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Joe, I have to ask you, there are, going back to that John Byrne run, um, there were six pages that uh, for Captain America 256 that were never published. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what happened with this story and, and why was this never published? I've heard conflicting stories about it um, that either Shooter wouldn't allow multiple storylines and John and Roger quit over it or Shooter has a, another story or... I, Roger Stern was Jim Salakrup's editor when uh, Jim got into the business. Salakrup was Stern's assistant. So I think when Salakrup became Roger's boss, Roger didn't kind of like it much. And that might have been part of a factor into it. Mm -hmm. um, but all I know is, and, and by the way, that Captain America, that's the all pencil issue. It's not all pencil. Again, because I wanted the series to be special, they made photostats from the pencils and they were sitting there and they reproduced from it. And a lot of the lines dropped out. So I came around with ink and I reinforced the lines and I filled in the blacks and I just made it printable. So when everybody was talking about how oh, look a great pencil reproduces, it wasn't, it was my inks. Um, so then, I missed the whole issue of employment, right? Because they get John pencils. So then I came in for the next one and they said, oh, John and Roger quit. I went, where did everybody go? I mean, what, what happened? How, I mean, 
and and that's when I think there was an issue of um, the Elias. I think where I did part of um, what ha those so those six pages were part of the three issue arc with with Red Skull, which you think you know Red Skull is the Captain America villain. He should show up pretty soon. Um, so Roger was given those by John, and I about six months ago inked all six of them on blue line prints. And they are on my website, which is joerubensteinart.com. And uh, I tried to ink them the way I would have 40 years ago when we were doing the series. So if anybody sees what wants to see what potentially could have happened, they're there waiting for you. Awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely want to check those out. Uh, joerubensteinart.com. Um, so... Just following up on some Cap stuff here, you, you, you spent some time on Cap working with Paul Neary, and you right. did a handful of covers with him. It was uh, issues 293, 294, and then later on 311 and 322. What was it like working with him? Because I, I, he was based in England, right? Right, right. Um, it was fine and straightforward work. I mean, you know, you suddenly reminded me. The thing I don't like doing with Cap is the shield. It's just a pain in the ass. I think a lot of artists feel that same way. I, right. I, yeah, I think I see sometimes when when artists, they purposely turn the shield to the other side so you see the back so they don't have to do those quickly right. circle. Well, John John developed a method, I think where he used a pencil and a, a thumbtack push pin and he'd sort of make ovals that way and that was fine, except in ink, that's not the way you do it. It's not anywhere near as easy to do. You have to find tools and French curves and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, one of the things that um, I think stood out is the chain mail. And um, I did that based on the way Wally Wood did chain mail in his issue of Captain America over Gene Colan. But Woody was who I was his assistant when I was a kid. Woody based that chain mail on the way that Prince Valiant's chain mail was done. Mm. So when I said all comic book artists derived from the Holy Trinity, there you go. Foster influenced the cap chain mail. So where a lot of people would do that half circle scoopy thing, I would turn it more into those little flecks of shadow and light. Um, so, you know, Paul was fine. Paul was solid. Uh, you know, the thing is, like, again, a, a, an actor in a movie, I do the best I can do. And then the editor and the director screw it up or don't, <laughs> you know. And so I'll do this work and I'll do it as hard as I can. And I'll try to live up to the expectations of the penciler, which I feel a real responsibility to. And then the colorist screws it up and you go, oh, great. That scene was supposed to be blue and he made it red. Now, that you know. And or or I will do the artwork as best as I can, and then I'll read the whole whole comic book. I went, yeah, this sucks. This is not a good story. I mean, I'm I'm not proud of this now. Um, so when things come together, like the Captain America, I think who was it that wrote my Neary stuff? Was it the Mattis? Mark Grunewald. Grunewald. All right. Well, Mark was Mark loved Captain America, and he loved comic books. He lived for comic books. The thing that, that killed him, I think, is because he was so disillusioned with where the industry was going. 
that he died of a heart attack, I think, in his early 40s or something. Yeah, he was young. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's good to do a comic book. I, I, also, if I remember right, I don't feel any particular pressure about, oh, well, this is the last time I did Captain America with Byrne and everybody loves that series. It was like, all right, it's fresh, it's new. I mean, what I was disappointed by with my run with Cap is that um, I don't think the Bernie Rosenthal thing lasted that much longer. Um, and also since Cap was a commercial artist, I wanted them to assign one guy to draw anything that Steve Rogers had to draw so that if he wasn't that good, I could feel superior. Like, eh, I'm better than Steve Rogers, you know. Uh, um, but, you know, also I remember, remember our cap run got rid of the previous origin story that Cap's father was a diplomat and all that other stuff. And it's like, you know, Steve, uh, Roger and John showed up and went, no, that stinks. We're, we just got to explain that away and get back to the original concept of who he was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, was some retcon going on uh, there. But um, you know, for many of us, at a certain age, um, that was our—that's what we knew, and that's that's the story that we you know we we fell in love with. Um, and and just you know, after Burn, uh, there was that magnificent long run by by Zach and Beatty uh, that mm-hmm. um, was great. Um, you 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 only had I that I saw a couple of opportunities where you worked with Zach on cap. There was, um, there was a cover that you did for, I think it was 323 uh, with him. Uh, that's that Marvel anniversary, you know, f- frame issue, which is just mm-hmm. the big uh, hit. Right. And, 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 but then you also worked on uh, annual number eight, which was the cap versus Wolverine. Now I know John Beatty also got credit for the, for that issue. So what was your involvement? Well, you know, John, um, I have this habit of ending my line with like three dots, like stroke, dot, dot, dot. And then I was looking at John's work and he had four dots after. And I went, John, are you doing this to be better than me? And he went, yeah. Went, okay. So, so John, John was influenced by my work. And then he was, he became, you know, tied at the hip to Mike on, on Zach Beatty stuff. So, I guess the book was running late. I mean, comic books are a lot of work. They're very time intensive. And, you know, I, I have no life. I have no children. I have no wife. So I can just work. But when you have another life, I guess occasionally they want you to, like, have dinner. Sure. So so books get late and they have to get rushed. And they turned to me and I guess because I was on ca- Captain America, they said, you want to do these uh, last nine pages of the annual with that great iconic character on it where Wolverine is, is whacking away at the shield which I, by the way, recently did a recreation of. And uh, I said, sure. And then I handed it in. And they said, do you mind if we don't leave your, uh, put your credit on it? I went, yeah, I mind. He says, oh, come on, it'll take a week. And No, I mind. I want credit for this thing. And so the very last line in the thing is, and credit to Joe Rubenstein for inking pages, whatever. Little did I know that years and years later, now people have me autograph it because now they know I worked on it, you know. And I also did a, a Falcon backup in one of the Captain Americas with Zeca also, in one of the Captain Americas. Also, Byrne did a, like an Avengers and Fantastic Four annual where Joe Sinnott inked one and um, Kyle Baker inked the other one. 
and Kyle was my assistant when I was a kid, when he was a kid. And so he was working on the job and I went, hey, can I ink the Captain America figures? So there's like a page of it where I ink Cap again over John Byrne in that issue. Nice. Yeah. You know, you mentioned about trying to get, make sure that you got credit for annual number eight, you know, inkers um, sometimes, you know, don't always get the credit they deserve. And one of the things that uh, I know uh, if you look back in the seventies and eighties, sometimes the, it says uh, inked by many hands. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like a, a laundry list of people. I know you have fallen into that category of quote unquote, many hands. Um, how, why does that happen? Because the book is ridiculously late and because people are milling around this, the, the offices and the editor goes, hey, listen, can you take a page for overnight or can you take three pages for the weekend? And sure, sure, sure. And it comes back. And, and, and the thing is, you know, with royalties and um, reprints, they like, we don't know who the many hands are, so we're not paying. He says, well, I was there. He says, yeah, but you got proof? He says, well, that was 25 years ago. He says, well, Tom Palmer still has his vouchers for 25 years ago. And says, yeah, and he's the one. I mean, who of us thought we should keep our lousy vouchers? So go, look, as a matter of fact, the issue of Daredevil I did with um, the Hulk, Klaus, it's, it's, the credits are Rubenstein and Jansen, but that implies that we each did 50-50. Well, Klaus did the first two pages and I did the next 16 or 18 pages. So when the, the reprint money, which is not a lot, you know, you can buy a dinner somewhere if you're lucky with that money. And, and Klaus and I went to Marvel and said, well, he didn't do 50% of it. I should get the majority of the money. He says, you got proof? I go, what do you think? We've both conspired to shift more money to Klaus, you know? And, and that's the kind of stuff that I suppose it happens in any profession. But as I mentioned earlier, I've never had another job. It's like, what is this? What is this stupid politicking? What is this stupid paperwork? It's like, why can't you just believe us when we tell you what we've done? You know, so, so like anything else in life, the doing of the work is the easiest part. It's making on the phone calls and all the stuff that revolves around it. That's the pain in the ass, which is maybe, uh, you know, it's like I was, I was talking to um, Starlin the other day. And uh, of course, when I say Starlin, I mean, Clem Starlin. <laughs> and um, he he said, you know, they'll break your heart every time. And and they will, because like I, I mentioned, you want the comic book to be good. You want the writing to be good and the penciling to be good and the inking, the coloring. And then it comes out and they found just a way to break your heart every time, you know. And it's 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 not so much that people don't care and people don't love their jobs. It's people are asked to do too much. And many things are are fall by the wayside because of that well for someone who's worked on thirteen thousand different pages uh in his career i, I was robbed i want to emphasize that <laughs> like like i i used to help um uh brett breeding meet his deadlines nobody knows about those pages yeah. but that's okay <laughs> all right yeah you know and, and so artists, you know, they come and go off of books uh, at the whim of editors and things like that. Uh, or, or their own whims. Yeah. So what happened with the Adventures of Captain America miniseries, right? Kevin McGuire uh, was the artist. You had worked with him right. a pr- few years previously on the Justice League International, which, um, you know, it's 
classic storyline, uh, you know, hysterical and one of my favorites. And Kevin McGuire, by all means, is one of my all-time favorite artists. He's just the master of facial mm-hmm. expressions. Um, so you got a chance to work with him on the first issue of Adventures of Captain America, which was that 1940s retelling, reimagining the, the history mm-hmm. of, of Cap. Uh, and then you you weren't on the subsequent, subsequent issues. Was that a, a your whim or is that an editor or what, what happened there? Kevin is an excellent draftsman and the Justice League and formerly known as the Justice League. And I can't believe it's not the Justice League are all great comic books and they're very funny. Um, and I guess Kevin decided to make this his grand opus. He, he really worked hard on it and he put everything into it he could. And it took me forever and ever and ever and ever. And I was just drowning because nothing was getting done. And I guess by that time, Kevin had managed, maybe there was a lot of lead time, which means we may have to have four issues, but you, we can start six months early and then they'll be on schedule. And, and uh, maybe Kevin's next issue was done or mostly done by the time I was still working on the first one. And they just went, you know, we got to get this done. We're going to give it to Terry Austin. I went, okay. I mean, I didn't like it, uh, but Kevin just put so much into it that, you know, you can hack out a job and it won't look good or you can do it, give it the, the, the quality it deserves. But I just, I was just burnt out on that thing. And, I, and, and, and you'll notice by the fourth issue, Kevin wasn't even on it. Right. So, so yeah. So you've worked with somewhere between 400 to 450 different pencilers in your right. career. Who's on your bucket list someday to work with that you haven't? Well, somebody who was on my list, and Steve Lytle just died like, two days ago and uh, I'd never worked with Steve and I, I always hoped I would um, people who I didn't get to work with was like Alex Toth which said yes to a job and then said no um, really the uh, and, and I think people that don't let other people ink them like I think Joe Kubert and Joe's only let like six people in his whole career ever ink them or John Buscema, John Bolton Bernie Wrightson who was rarely inked by anybody else Nowadays, um, I think I'd like to ink Ivan Rios um, because, you know, on the Superman guy. I don't know if he's still doing Superman. Um, my work generally, I think, I don't, I don't get employed by the companies much ever. I don't think they know I'm alive. I think the, the people who work there don't even know I exist. Um, so I don't get asked to do the contemporary people. So I'd like, I'd like to try Ivan Rios is the only one that comes to mind. Maybe Mike Diodato, but I don't know that he pencils for other people. I think he inks on a computer, which is also a problem because an awful lot of people nowadays just do their work directly on computer, cutting the inker out altogether. So, but but at the same time, you know, I, I inked Perez on the Infinity Gauntlet and the Avengers. And I think all those guys who followed Perez went, well, I can, I'm going to out, George, George, and put in more details. And when it's a, a page, I think there's a guy named Jose Luis, wonderful, wonderful draftsman. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that there's any new need for me to be there once it's all done. Um, I've inked um, Finch, David Finch, who does a great, intense page. And 
David was nice enough to tell me of these two Batman pinups I did of his, that my inking was the closest he'd ever gotten to what he wanted in his pencils. Um, but I don't know when it's all done. If, if I, you know, I used to think it's a waste of me to ink Arthur Adams or people like that because they're so, so tight. But then I would see other people who would lose what was there. So I guess my contribution was not like a, a doctor to do you know, harm and not screw it up. But uh, unfortunately, I don't read comic books much anymore. So I don't know who's working on them to, to give you a, a more proper list. No, well, the list that you gave me was pretty, pretty top notch. Uh, and you, you do a lot of commissions, whether mm, right. or, or painting or finishing and inking others work. How can right. listeners get in touch with you if, if they have something that, that they would like to reach out to you about? Well, they can always write Joe at JoeRubensteinArt.com. I also have a website, Joe Rubenstein Art. There's also MB as in Marion Bradley <laughs> Artists. Um, I'm on Facebook, two, three different sites, and I'm on Instagram. So I guess there's a, but, but you know, it's funny because somebody wrote me once to get a, a release about a painting of mine for a movie. And they went, oh, we, uh, we couldn't find you. I went, you think you can be found? And then it's like, what do I do? So yeah, I think I'm, I'm, not, I'm on Twitter, but I never use it. So I guess just the general sites that people look for people on, plus a web search. And I know you, you occasionally c- contribute to uh, our Facebook page, the Captain America comic book fans pa- Facebook page. So it's, it's always right. adding with you there uh, about your work. Um, what else do you have going on? There's this book called the um, Liberty Brigade. And it's put out by Nostalgia Press, which is on Facebook. It was a jumpstart thing, a Kickstarter thing. Um, and it's about superheroes right after World War II fighting Nazis. It's a hundred page thing. I did about half of it with Ron Friends, who did Spider-Man and Superman with me. And it's also got um, George Perez and Jim Starlin and Alan Weiss. And if you like good old fashioned comic books that look like good old fashioned comic books, that's a, about to happen. Um, I'm doing an Alan Weiss story for this magazine called Creeps. And as I said, Alan did Captain America and the Werewolves. Um, but mostly I just, I just do commissions and recreations. And um, it's, I, I have been criminally underemployed for the last 21 years. But it, never, it, it doesn't feel like I've ever left comic books because I'm always doing comic books. Plus, if you want... I'll do your dog with Thanos. I mean, you know, it's like I'll, I'll, I'll paint pretty much anything if you just, just give me money. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's certainly been a, a, a real pleasure uh, having you on here. And um, uh, we, we, we loved hearing your stories uh, and not only about Captain America, but throughout your career and, and the various um, artists that you've worked with. Uh, it's, it's certainly been a real, real pleasure, Joe. So thanks for coming on and being a guest. Thanks for having me. Super fun. Super fun. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't even starting. You, you should have had another three hours. I have, <laughs> I have stories.